0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silconet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great, and I'm all the better for seeing you this afternoon. Excellent. Uh, so the idea for uh, this week's epi- episode comes from a, a listener, Ian, who, who asked the question about uh, what role do schools have in these kinds of cultural uh, battlefield debates we've been having in recent uh, months and years. Um there's lots of recent examples that we've seen in the news of, of both the metaphorical and literal fights breaking out at school board meetings, debates over mask mandates and vaccines, debates over curriculum matters, the 1619 project we've talked about previously, um, critical race theory, which we also talked about previously, uh, but also a recent Supreme Court case about school choice in Maine. Uh, so we thought it would be an interesting sort of. Vehicle to look at schools this week and uh, to talk about who runs the schools. Is this our schools run by how have schools played a role in American society and American democracy? Are schools primarily for students? Are they run by teachers? Are they run by parents? Are they run by school boards? States, what's the deal, right? So, that's sort of the framing for our episode.
1: Yeah, if I can, and uh, I think it's a great topic. And if I can just say two things, one is to thank Ian, who's yes. one of our most loyal listeners. And Ian goes way back, and I I suspect he listened to our very earliest episodes, and occasionally writes to us, Ian from San Francisco. And so we're really pleased to hear from Ian, and and, and welcome his <laughs> suggestion, and and thank him for getting in touch. The second is uh, I I do think we have to. Uh, uh, clarify our um, our vocabulary today. So we're going to ta- in talk in talking about in discussing schools. I think to a large extent we're going to exclude tertiary ed- education that is universities mm. and colleges, which we've talked about in other contexts, but I think that will largely be absent from this discussion. The other thing is, and this is important because we have so many British listeners. I think we're going to be using public schools to refer to states funded schools in the United States. We'll be using public schools in the American sense of the term, not in the British sense of the term, which is to say private schools. So we'll talk about public schools. And when we talk about private schools, we'll be talking about private schools. We'll be using the American usages for these terms.
0: Yes. Um, and the terminology can get, can, can get confusing. So. Oh, it's going
1: to be confusing enough, even even having stipulated that. That, right. <laughs> As usual.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, common language, uh, etc. cetera. Right. Uh, so let's go back to the colonial period, Frank. What, what were schools, what did they look like in the colonial era? Who ran them? Who was responsible
1: for them? What, what did they, they look like? Well, as usual, it depends on where you are. Uh, most of the, 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 when one talks about the origins of, of schools, particularly public schools in the United States, uh and, and one goes back to the 17th century, one normally goes back to my native New England, and that's mm. where the story is is focused. Uh in large part because we see the first schools established by settlers uh in what will become British North America, laterally the United States in 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 New England. Uh and, and the reason for this is is quite um, well, it's, it's quite simple actually, because of because New England was first settled uh, or, um, by uh, English Calvinists um, who subscribed to a, a form of of Protestantism that placed a heavy deal of a great deal of emphasis on uh, reading the Bible in the vernacular. People had to be literate to read the Bible, and in order to be literate. To read the Bible, you had to be taught how to read. Mm -hmm. And so what we see is there's a very close correlation. There's no separation of church and state in 17th century New England. Uh, And indeed, church and state are the same thing effectively. But because of that, there's a strong emphasis on education, at least uh, what we would come to think of as primary education from an early, uh, really from first settlement. And uh, there's an emphasis on teaching both boys and girls to read uh, as children so that they could read the Bible and as a consequence by the time the revolution rolls around um, you know the literacy rates in New England are very very high they're among the world's highest it's difficult to measure these things in the 18th century but what we get are um, local schools often, so 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 uh, many people will know that Harvard is established to train ministers in 1630, but the first kind of secondary school that's established in what will become the United States is Boston Latin School, established in 1635. Uh, and Boston Latin School still exists. Uh, and, and so what we see is uh, the emergence of relatively small community-based taxpayer-supported or church-supported uh, educational establishments in colonial New England. As you go elsewhere I mean you get you get a similar development in, in uh, New Netherlands what will become mm. New York and for the same reason. Dutch Reformed Calvinists uh, are settling in New Netherlands um, and the Quakers emphasize education in the middle colonies and, and and other small Protestant sects that settle in Pennsylvania. As you go further south we don't see the same things what we see in the south uh is often an emphasis on private tutors so we see large planters um uh, employing tutors for their children so the, the model the, the the pattern isn't it's difficult to generalize about all of the mainline mm-hmm. colonies because it, it does uh, differ by region but that's 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 an overview is that okay
0: no i think that I mean one one of the things that the, the, i think there's a couple themes there that, that are going to reappear in other places one is that that you know, the regional variations can be pretty substantial. Yeah. And that this is the question about religion in schools and what's the relationship between schools and religion is going to be a a, a complicated one, um, you know, throughout throughout this, this history. You know, and looking back at those Massachusetts laws that sort of created these first schools, that one of the things that I noticed that was interesting was that for very small communities, it said the primary responsibility for education should is with the parents, that they have an obligation to teach their children to read, and that once the community got to a certain size, then they had to hire a teacher. The town, the community, was responsible for hiring a teacher, and if it got to an even bigger size, then they actually had to build a school. But it was very much both a you know the the model was a very hyper local one, even if it was mandated from uh, the state government, and the responsibility was very much this sort of hyper-local idea of what schools war and what schools should look like.
1: Yeah, and you you also have a transitional uh, phase between those two, David, mm-hmm. which is, the, you, you see in 17th and 18th century New England something called dame schools, have you heard of these? No, no. And so dame schools, as, as the name would suggest, were often, what you'd get is, a group of parents banding together, and one of the mothers would mm. teach kind of rudimentary ABCs, um, and so uh, hence the name. And so we see these as a kind of it, it, it's a kind of uh, something in between. Okay, kids being taught at home uh, by their parents or going elsewhere in the community to a to something that we would recognize as a school. You get these sort of dame schools, which is basically a local woman, usually doing it for money, but also doing it because this would often be. Um, uh, either widows or, or, or couples that were poor running these dame schools, uh, to supplement their income, but we're kind of running a school in their kitchen, yeah. <laughs> if you will. And was schooling compulsory in New England? Like did, did most
0: kids go to, I mean, it sounds like from your description about literacy that most kids could, went to school. Was it a, did they have a school year? How did that, that all work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's oriented around the agricultural year, of course, because these were agricultural communities in the main. Mm-hmm. Some of them were fishing communities, but it's a different rhythm, but it's the same principle. Uh, and and I, I think there was an expectation that all children would go to school to a certain point. I mean, there's not an expectation mm-hmm. that, that all... The boys are going on to Harvard, for example. Harvard was for training ministers. Um, And and so there's a kind of uh, sorting that will go on in the colonial period. So everyone has some education, and there's an expectation. The power of social uh, kind of control and conformity in this society was such that, although we often hear about kind of really um, uh, harsh puritan laws about i don't know you get your eyes gouged out if you eat ice cream on a sunday or whatever all this kind of nonsense mm. and these law these blue laws are on the books but uh, so the power of social conformity in early new england was so, was so strong mm. that it wasn't necessary necessarily sorry that's a terrible sentence to legislate yeah. cuz you just went to school you learned to read so that you could read the bible and you could you could be a functioning yeah. member of society most didn't do much more than that it's yeah. got to be said so so they're very good at educating the kind of uh, broad um, uh, society at a kind of basic level yeah. but the, 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 the more advanced is more difficult so there's not a you know the, the, the academic year wouldn't be recognized yes, as we, we would, would recognize right. it you know you so oh, it's time for Easter break or whatever but it was it was origi- it was <laughs> yeah. it was organized around the agricultural year in the main so when kids needed to provide labor yeah. particularly taking in harvest they're not going to school at that point.
0: You know, outside New England, one thing that strikes me is, is how little schooling actually happened. Right? You mentioned in, in the South, that, you know that that wealthy planters could hire tutors, but if you weren't of that class, your access to education was, was profoundly limited. If you're looking on the frontier, many kids didn't go to school, or if they did, they only went for a few weeks at a time when their families could spare them. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln describes. His own education, he's born in, I think, 1809, you know, he went to school for a few weeks, for a few years of his life, and that was the totality of his education, because that's what his family could could both spare his labor and, uh, you know, afford to send him to. Uh, You know, so there are lots of of Americans, you know, well into the sort of early 19th century who are uneducated or are very, very minimal kinds of education.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And and although we have the kind of New England schoolhouses as a, as a kind of model for the origins of education in America, um, and the New England story is important. Mm. That, that's an important caveat, I think, David, we need to bear that in mind in having this discussion in this early period. Um, it's very, very patchy, and it's haphazard, and it does, it is determined by region. So you get, you know, Jefferson. He, his dad and mother send him to a tutor who's okay, a Scotsman uh, who who knows a little bit of Latin mm. and teaches him a little bit of Latin and Greek. He goes on to a better tutor later, and eventually will go to William and Mary, uh, you know, which is one of the nine colleges in colonial America. As a young teenager, I mean, people went to what we would call college now or university at a much younger age, um, but but. He's a not representative of Virginia, mm. uh, in any way, and and b even for him, it's a little bit haphazard. It depends on who the tutor is in, in some cases, and some of these tutors only have a smattering of education mm. themselves. Uh, and, yeah, and there wasn't a
0: professional model of what a teacher was. No, no, no,
1: that's right. And often a tutor will also be a dance teacher or whatever, and so there's a variety. And I'm that's an important to,
0: part of your education as well. Well,
1: to be in the Virginia gentry, it is, because, yeah. uh, and and and. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Lincoln because one of the things that amazes me about both Lincoln and Mark Twain is these are both people roughly contemporary uh, mm-hmm. contemporaries I mean Twain's born a little bit later who had a very low level of formal education yet were both quite accomplished writers and how that Came to be, I think, has always kind of perplexed me. I think both happened to be autodidacts mm. um, and were and read widely. So having ha- having been taught to read, they took advantage of the opportunities that reading afforded them. But it's still quite extraordinary because both of them became quite accomplished prose stylists. Mm. Um, and and how that happened is kind of a mystery to me. Yeah. I, well, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure Lincoln
0: actually read that widely as a child. I think he only had access to like five books, so I think he read deeply in the you know uh, the books that he had. But uh, uh, obviously, as an old uh, you know as an adult, he, he did read widely. You know, thinking about sort of turning points though in in you know how schools are set up and people's relationships to schools, I think the sort of the real big turning point is in the, the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, with the common school movement sorry 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 no, before we get to that well want, no i want to
1: speak up for the revolution and okay, the, importance of course the revolution <laughs> because just as in the colonial early colonial period at least in new england there's an emphasis on okay you in order for us to be a religious folk we have to be able to engage with the bible and the vernacular in the late 18th century there's an important emphasis on education as a consequence of the revolution um, because you have to be Educated to a certain level, at least, or that's the hope, uh, so that you can inculcate the right virtue to be a functioning citizen. Yes. And and we do see uh, an improvement in education in the aftermath for both girls and boys in the aftermath of, of the revolution. Um, and I think that's an important precursor. Pre- cursor for what's gonna happen in the 1830s and 40s, which I think you're about okay, to talk yeah, about. Yeah. So I think it lays the foundation for what's about to come. I think that's an important transitional moment because there's both an improvement in education, but there's also a recognition that the current state of education isn't good enough. Jefferson, in in redrafting the laws of Virginia, he serves on a committee after independence, that uh, proposes a law to create um, a system of state-funded public schools in Virginia that will be open to both girls and boys, at least in, the, in what we would call the elementary age group. Um, and it's meant to be a meritocracy. The boys can advance ultimately, going to a university. Um, he has William and Mary in mind originally, but it will become, uh, it will become, uh, the University of Virginia later. But this is an important transitional moment that needs to be remembered. I think. So I just think we uh, need to acknowledge the revolution as an important important turning point between uh, the kind of haphazard colonial education and the more formalized. Uh, System that emerges in the nineteenth century that I think you were about to talk about. Yeah, yes, so, sorry. sorry about yeah,
0: that. Yeah, well, I think that's an important you know, segue because I think the common school movement, which sort of starts in the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties and then sort of spreads uh, nationwide, I think actually you know has its roots in some of the ideology about the revolution. Um, and uh, in some ways, the sort of public school system that, that Americans think of really begins with the common school movement. Um, which has its home in in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts seems to be the epicenter for many of these things.
1: We're smarter than the rest of you, David.
0: (laughs) Not sure how to respond to that. Right. Um, uh, And so the context for for the common school movement, there's there's lots of things that are going on in in the 1830s and 1840s to help to shape this. The Second Great Awakening is happening. The sort of democratization, uh, the Jacksonian democracy is happening. You know, the lowering of, of removal of, of voting restrictions, all kinds of things. The person who was given most credit for the common school movement is a guy named Horace Mann, who runs the Massachusetts State Board of Education. Uh, he actually later is also a U.S. senator. Replaces John Quincy Adams as in the Senate seat uh, from Massachusetts. Um, but he envisioned uh, a, a much more centralized state school system. In which you know instead of these sort of haphazard local schools, where local each local school was its own anarchic kind of thing, to having standards for what schools should look like, that schools should be open to everybody regardless of their ability to pay, he thought they were needed for edu- you know not only for education to prepare people for you know prayer and religious life but also for citizenship and I think that connects to this sort of. Um, revolutionary idea. He says that there was a, a, an ability of schools, of common schools, to equalize the conditions of men. So there was a sort of leveling effect that a common school uh, education could have. Uh, he thought teachers should be trained. He thought that, like, that it was important to not just have random tutor appointed to head a school because the guy needed a job, but actually have systems and, and educational institutions in place to train teachers to be good teachers. Um, and, you know, the kind of curriculum that uh, Mann emphasized were the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, history, and geography, uh, but there was also a very strong sort of moral character component to, to the sort of school system that, that Horace Mann envisioned.
1: And that's kind of a legacy of that necessity of civic v- virtue, virtue right. to, for, for the health of a republic. Um, the other one other thing that man uh, introduced I think that's important David is the uh, sorting and sorting of students into grades by approximate age
0: yeah so I mean that sort of starts there and obviously it, it has different manifestations in different places depending on the population density you're, you know you've got you still have your one-room schoolhouses going on well into the 20th century where you've got mixed age levels Um you know there is religion in Horace Mann's School, so it's not a complete departure from, you know, the the Puritan model that you learn. You know the, the schools are there to teach you how to be good Christians. Uh, but Mann envisioned it as being non-sectarian. so it's not specifically to train you to be a good Puritan. It's it's there is a uh, sort of uh, he wanted it to be open to, to st- school students of all sort of backgrounds. One of the consequences of this though is that, that as man's models sort of spread from Massachusetts to other places, it caused lots of problems when Catholic parents felt that their children were being taken and put into schools where they were being taught from the King James Bible, you know, which was seen as being the Protestant Bible. Um, and there were Protestants who were angry and fearful that Catholics would try to go and use the schools somehow to to make their children into Catholics. And so there are actual sort of fights over religion in the schools going back into the the 1840s. In fact, there was even riots in New York and Philadelphia over what kind of religious education would take place in schools.
1: Do you think those riots anticipate the kind of discussions we're having or discussions I'm using discussions, discussions very yeah. liberally uh the, the kind of debates that are going on in the United States today over over school curriculum I, I think
0: we you know one of the things that threads that runs throughout uh American schooling is this debate over what is you know place of of religious education moral education sex education and these are all sort of part and parcel of you know debates that go back uh, you know, Go back to the um, colonial era. In fact, there's, there, I found this interesting case uh, sort of jumping backwards in time. In the 1740s in Connecticut, this is during the First Great Awakening, when there were debates over, does this, the state of Connecticut allow the new light the sort of reforms part of the churches to open schools or not? And they, said, they passed a the law and said, no, they all have to be old light schools. Uh, and so there's certain you know fights about what kind of religion going uh, back. out, and obviously the people in seventeenth century Massachusetts had very definitive ideas about what was the right and wrong kind of religious education.
1: So I was thinking about Horace Mann today, David, on my walk back from from the university. As one does, as one does. Um, and I hope all of you were thinking about Horace Mann today, Um Two things struck me. One is uh, just the observation that he was particularly influenced by developments in Prussia at the same mm. time, and I, I think that's an important um, uh, source for his thinking. And, and, and Prussia, in many respects, was at the cutting edge of a lot of these questions about the relationship of individuals to the state in the, in the 19th century. Uh, so there's that element of it. The other is, so man, we we, we don't always um, think of the 1830s as the most progressive decade in the history of the United States, mm. and for good reasons. It's associated with Andrew Jackson, of course, uh, but but Jackson is a shorthand for Indian removal and the spread of slavery and so on and so forth. And these are important things, and, and they're important topics, which we've talked about many times. However... I think a man in the common school movement, and also you know Alexis de Tocqueville visits the United States during this period to look at the prisons and asylums, and and in in many respects, uh, people were looking to the United States as a, as a model for social and and government policy in certain areas. Um, particularly with regard to uh, prisons, which again would probably shock Europeans today. Uh, in part because we still have the same prison system today. <laughs> but but uh, as well as education, and and I'm just uh, you, this is more your period yeah, than mine. But, but I don't know really whether well, you have any reflections you know, on that. One of the sort of,
0: and I think there's there's a lot of connections here both with the Second Great Awakening and the sort of market revolution, if if that's a term people still use. Um. You know, the, the, that leads to lots of reform movements, especially in New England. So things like education, uh, the uh, care for the mentally ill, Dorothea Dix, and the sort of the movement for, for what were called insane asylums in the 19th century, um, but also things like temperance reform. Um, reformed to protect against animal cruelty. There's all movements there. So I think there's there's a whole kind of humanitarian ethos that's embedded within this this particular
1: moment. Um, I guess there's a counter-history or, or a slightly different history of the 1830s that looks a lot different from Indian removal and, and slavery, as important and dominant as those things are.
0: Yes. Well, and one of the th- aspects about how that actually then shapes education it is that we see the spread of, of Horace Mann's ideas of common schools. You know, it spreads throughout New England, it goes into the sort of Midwest. It doesn't really spread into the South, in part because that kind of model of education was seen as both not necessary in, a, in a, the kind of rural economy that the South had, but also because of fears that the school model that Horace Mann was embracing would spread toxic ideas to Southern white Children. Horace Mann himself, uh, when he mentioned he got elected to the Senate, one of the first speeches he gave was an anti slavery speech about stopping the spread of slavery in, in into Western territories. You know, the idea that the fear that, that these reform movements, and obviously the most radical of them is the abolitionist movement, I guess, and the women's rights movement, you know, the fear that that, that would be toxic to um, Southern. White Southern ideas about about race and slavery. So so so, so uh, David, stop it. Stop the spread of these kinds of schools. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so I, I want to pursue that 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 theme for a second, which is to say, what did Southern education? What did education in the Southern states look like? Was it a continuation? Because Jefferson's bill yeah. that I mentioned a minute ago failed. The, the the House of Delegates wouldn't spend the money on it. So although it's idealistic and it's an interesting uh, plan, it it was no mm. more than that. So. What Was it like the 18th century with sort of the elite being tutored and that was it? There
0: are, there are um, private schools for wealthy people, both for, for young men and young women. Uh, there are private sort of military academies um, in the South, of which there are a variety. Um, there are a handful of states that start to experiment with common schools in the 1850s. Uh, North Carolina is one of them that does, uh, but most of the rest of the South doesn't. So, I mean, in terms in if you think you, you, there isn't the as robust development of, of a public education system, it doesn't develop as quickly in the South as it does in the North. Compulsory education laws are also slower to pass in the South. So, Massachusetts passes a compulsory education law in the... Eighteen fifties. It says you are. It says you are required to send your children to school. That's not, you know, it's not just like if you want to. It's, it's I mean, it's the, the the those don't get passed in the South until, um, in some cases, until the twentieth century. I think Mississippi doesn't have one until nineteen twelve, um, and so there there is a very different model of of what uh, education looks like. You know, one of the things that's intriguing looking at the common school movement, though, is, is actually, or Mark, how, despite these regional variations, how common the curriculum was. And I think this is actually a, a something we will see later on about who decides what gets taught in these schools. Um, and even if these are run by, you know, administered by states, in some cases by local school boards, by individual teachers, the curriculum is actually largely determined by... McGuffey's Readers. Are you familiar with McGuffey's Readers? I am familiar, right. but tell, okay, tell so, our so listeners, David. McGuffey's Readers were a set of, originally there were four, later there were more, uh, uh, basically textbooks that were given to students that were the the, the long the sort of level one is sort of teaching you how to read and they get progressively harder um, as you as you go through them. They're first published in 1836, uh, so at the same moment that, that Horace Mann is... Um, promoting this idea of of common schools. Um, And they include, you know, if you read sort of the higher level ones, uh, they've got selections from Shakespeare, from Milton, uh, from the Bible, uh, but also uh, sort of patriotic texts. They've got the Declaration of Independence is in there, Daniel Webster's in there, Uh, in later editions you've got... uh, Lincoln in there. Like the Gettysburg Address is largely something that students know, not because it was famous in 1863, but because they encountered it in McGuffey's readers. Uh, and this was the, the, and obviously they're different editions through time, the sort of defining curricular text for Americans throughout the 19th uh, century and in, into the 20th century. Um, if you read uh Laura Engels Wilder's uh, Little House books. McGuffey's readers are always in the background there. She, you know, does that that the instructional text that she was using. Henry Ford attributed his success educationally to McGuffey's readers. They were read by everybody, there were millions and millions of, of copies sold. Um, and it really did form a sort of somewhat common curriculum for, for lots of Americans. Um, who
1: decided what was in McGuffey's Readers, do you know? Because it seems to you're right. I mean, one of the things we see in, in the 20th century and certainly in the mm. 21st century are debates over what's appropriate for kids, kids to read, read in school. we yeah. seeing debates about uh, well, libraries right now. Well, so
0: the original McGuffey's Reader, which was written by or edited by William Holmes McGuffey, uh, you know, was, he had a very clear sort of moral vision of what was he wanted to be in his books. Um you know and given that there wasn't a whole lot of teacher education, there wasn't a lot of choices about alternative texts like what do you give kids to read. You know, this sort of had a school in a box kind of, of model attached to it. Um, you know, the later editions are, are slightly different, but it is really sort of a corporate enterprise in some ways about who gets to decide what's in these books. Um, now, not everyone liked the kinds of, of curriculum that they got now southern southerners white southerners complained that these were sort of yankee ideas that were infiltrating um, their schools Uh, there's a movement in the south in the 1850s to create a separate southern curriculum Uh, during the confederacy there's even a confederate textbook industry to create a confederate education system as an alternative to what they saw as being a a, a new york and and new england based uh, curriculum um, so you have um, you know Confederate math books and Confederate readers and Confederate geography books, uh, which are somewhat comical to read if you look at them. Look at them now. Tell
1: me that the Confederate math book taught fractions like three fifths. <laughs> oh, they do have
0: the. I've actually read the Confederate math book. It has questions like, if one Confederate soldier can whip seven Yankees, how many does it take to whip forty nine Yankees? Um, and their geography looks interesting, too. Um, but for most of the 19th century, one, you know, or the second half of the 19th century, the Sir sort of Common School movement really does become ubiquitous um, throughout the United States. It is, though, primarily what, what our British listeners will think of as, as a primary school. So there, there's it's not really until you get to this sort of later part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century that you start to see high school education becoming more more widespread. Yeah, the next
1: big moment of educational reform during the progressive era, I think leads to a kind of more widespread kind of professionalization of high school secondary, secondary education. education. Think, uh, it, yes. What about I mean you mentioned and we had a laugh about Confederate textbooks, but of course in most of the slave states, it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read. Yes. that's not to say there wasn't a there was not literacy among enslaved people because we know there was, but it was the rate was relatively low because of these prohibitions. What role does race play in this whole story, David? Well, you know, one of the, the first things that,
0: and you see this during the Civil War. itself, one of the first things that African Americans demand in freedom or in sort of the quasi freedom that existed uh in the early years of, of the civil war when they escaped from uh slavery from the plantation to contraband camps is they they said look we we want access to education we want to set up schools that's a very high priority and what you see during uh the war itself and, and early in, into reconstruction is a real emphasis on education and access to education as being one of the hallmarks of, of freedom uh, and Attending schools becomes something that not only children do, but but, but black adults do, uh, that, that they see that as being a signifier that, that, that they are no longer enslaved. Um, and so you see the, the construction of schools, you know, in basically refugee camps uh, across the south, uh, and later in, in reconstruction, you know, the establishment of schools for African Americans becomes um, very politically loaded. So, you know, it's one of the, when African Americans have political power during certain phases of Reconstruction, one of the things they emphasize is the construction of public schools. They embrace, in some ways, the New England common school model. On the other hand, attacking schools becomes one of the targets for white supremacists in the South who want to maintain a racial hierarchy. So burning black schools becomes endemic um, in Reconstruction as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool to terrorize the black community. And so schools have this very loaded um, political connotation, and, and obviously they continue to do so uh, in the South for the next century.
1: It seems to me there's a a curious divergence here, uh, which I, again, thought about on my way home today uh, in anticipation of this conversation. And I'd be interested to hear your responses, Mm. expert on the 19th century, where we see a sort of divergence where education is concerned. So for much of the history of slavery, well, in fact, for the entirety of the history of slavery uh, in the United States and its colonial antecedents, Mm. there was a desire to prevent enslaved people from accessing education. By contrast, where indigenous people were concerned, there was always a movement, small but still powerful, and we've seen we're seeing some of the consequences of it today in the United States and Canada, to foster education for native people of a particular kind to encourage assimilation, and so we have this uh, on one hand the state um, denying education to people of African descent, mm. while also promoting education of a particular kind to achieve a, a particular policy end by, uh, for Native peoples. Does that... St- you give me a perplexed yeah, look. Well, I mean, so so there seems they, to be they, a curious divergence here. Would you agree with that? or? I,
0: it is an interesting... Uh, well, divergence is an interesting way to think about it because, you know, you have these schools that are established during, during the Civil War and Reconstruction, and sometimes they are... Being run by by African Americans, sometimes they're being run by by the Freedmen's Bureau. Sometimes they're being run by uh, various uh, religious organizations, often or 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 missionary organizations uh, that are sending both white and black teachers from the north in, in, into the south.
1: Yeah, the stereotypes of Yankee school schoolmarm, right? right. Um,
0: the groups that often set up uh, schools for Native Americans; these were boardings schools of which we are learning more and more um, with every, uh, every passing year, which are quite horrific, these kinds of schools. They're set up boarding schools for Native Americans. They're actually often set up by very similar kinds of charitable organizations, and I think they sort of speak to a similar ethos about school as a sort of civilizing institution. Uh, and Now, they end up in very different places for, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but there are it, it does sort of draw from a similar uh, point of origin
1: and I think again if we jump ahead and I realize we have to we do yeah. have to jump ahead but to the progressive era when we get, yet another um, wave of, of educational reform again, as I as we indicated a moment ago, oriented particularly towards secondary education. but again, that's an area era of mass immigration. Mm. And again, education is seen as a way to Americanize, um, immigrants and the children, the first generation um, children of immigrants uh, as a result of that mass wave of immigration or those waves of immigration between 1890 and 1920 so uh, actually divergence was the wrong word problem mm-hmm. we're seeing a kind of um, um, a convergence mm-hmm. if you will and that, that that education is being seen as a way of addressing all kinds of social problems and I'm using problems in, in inverted quotes here uh, in inverted commas rather um, but it's seen as the solution to to Americanization. Yeah, no, I think that, that there's good, there's a definitely
0: an element to that. I mean, if we think about the creation of, of the Pledge of Allegiance right. in, in 1892, it's you know originally designed for school children to to signify that this is you know their their allegiance to the United States versus their allegiance to a, the European country in which they may have been born or their parents were born in, or their allegiance to the Confederacy or their allegiance to. You know, their native nation, um, there is that sort of nationalistic element in the role that schools play in um, you know, melting pot or what have you. So, so
1: we start with schools, if we go back to the 17th century, as vehicles um, for religion and to, to, to advance, explicitly advance religion. Mm. By the late 19th, early 20th century, what we're seeing is schools as vehicles for inculcating and promoting civic religion. Yes, I think that's right. That's a good, that's a good, what's
0: good, but religion is, is still there. Yeah, and of despite, course. You know, the, the great fight that I think everyone knows about for the story of the Scopes Monkey trial from 1925 sort of speaks to that. What is the role of, for those who come from this is a case in Tennessee involving uh, state law which prohibited the teaching of evolution and a teacher tried evolution and there was a huge trial. Um, see, uh, Inherit the Wind, the movie's great. Um, you know, but the, those kinds of fights over what kind of religious education or not religious education is going to be taught in schools and who gets to decide, you know, what the curriculum looks like. I think those are fights that are are very very present at the you know really throughout American history. Let's let's jump to the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. I think the sort of educational landscape really changes pretty dramatically. And this no. question of who runs the schools. Um,
1: you know, yeah, the know, modern history, history of it kind of starts in 1954, doesn't it? Really,
0: definitely. Um, you know, in as much as you do have the federal government taking it up, you know.
1: So, a, actually, why don't you explain for our listeners what Brown versus Board of Education? Oh, okay. Was let's s- don't, don't assume. Zoom.
0: Oh, yes, of course. I, I assume our audience is well educated in know. all things, and of course they are. But I will remind them for the for the yes. Um, so in uh, the 1890s, the Supreme Court had ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that, that segregation was constitutional, that you could have separate but equal facilities. And of course, segregated facilities were inherently unequal. In, um, and consequently, schools in much of the country, not all of the country, but much of the country were segregated, including those in Topeka, Kansas, uh, and which is the origin of, of this Brown versus Board of Education case. Uh, the Brown family wanted to send their daughter to the school that was local to them, which happened to be a white school rather than the African American school, which was much further away. Sued uh, to get access to to the the white school. way to the Supreme Court. Court heard the decision uh, case twice, once in fifty four, once in fifty five, and ruled that segregated facilities were inherently unequal and ordered the desegregation of American schools with uh, the phrase from the decision is all deliberate speed, which means, well, who knows what it means, right? I think the the, the, imp- the impetus the, sc- the court was trying to say was that schools should be desegregated quickly, but I think that it gave an opportunity for those who oppose school integration to to drag their heels as, as much as they could, uh, so you have the sort of massive resistance movement across the South and other places against school integration. The other thing that comes out in 1955, thinking of Brown versus Board of Education, though, is Milton Friedman, the Chicago economist, says that, the, the, the and he's saying this in the context of the Brown decision, what we should do, he says, to affix America's schools, is to introduce market principles into public education. We should allow people to pick what school they're going to go to and have some kind of choice um, involved rather than simply sending kids to these schools that are local to them. Um, and I think these two things in conjunction really fundamentally shaped the the educational landscape there over the next 70 years, this question about segregation and, and, and integration and how that's going to work and you know who gets to make these choices about what schools look like, uh, but also this idea about giving students and by extension parents, uh, a choice about what schools look like has really shaped the, the landscape in profound ways.
1: Yeah, so down to about, these are rough figures, so, so the, let's say 1960, 1970, Basically, what you had in the United States, what evolved over the course of the centuries from those first colonial schools is a system of state-supported education at the primary and secondary levels that eventually spreads across the country. there's also a parallel system of private schools. There have always been private schools. There were private schools, you know, going back before there were, were there. You know, when you think about Phillips uh, Andover Academy was created in 1778. So so there have been private schools throughout. There were also assist. There's a network of religious schools. One thinks mainly of parochial schools in this context, but there are also uh, various Protestants. There's a network of Protestant schools, but also Jewish schools and things like this. So there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a network of mainly public supported schools that most kids go to, but there are parallel, there's a parallel network of private schools and um, private religious schools. Beginning in about 1960 or maybe 1970, we see a proliferation, and particularly in the last 30 years, in mm. the 1990s, of a kind of fusion of all these things it all gets kind yeah. of mixed up with this emphasis on choice and i know you actually taught in the united states in the in, in the past 30 years yes, David. I, and I, so maybe I have. and,
0: a, I, and a, i've sent my kids to
1: school right okay, okay. So, yeah uh, so, so can you sorry is that a, is that a correct summation of where we were yes in your mind tell us where we are and how we got there briefly yes as <laughs> <So>, well so <laughs> so the you know what's happened
0: in the aftermath of of Brown and, and in the aftermath of this idea about school choice, there, there, there's been a whole sort of diversity of different kinds of educational options that, that sort of emerged from that, both schools that are trying to create a more integrated environment, but also ones that are trying to distinctly create a less integrated environment. So one of the things that happens in the immediate aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education is the rise of, of what are often called segregation academies, um, in the mostly in the South, but in other places as well. These are Private schools, many of them have religious affiliations um, that allow for selective admission and therefore allow for uh, either ex- outright relig- uh, racial discrimination or, in some cases, sort of passive uh, or sort of uh, negligible racial integration. Um, and what you find in many places is that in some communities, the, the public schools. Either close or become entirely African American, and are are sort of have a parallel school system with a white private schools um, that are uh, you know trying to to recreate in some ways the pre-Brown versus Board of Education system, Um, and you see this in many many parts of the South even today where you uh, have a white private school and then a predominantly black uh, public school. and, and you end up with lots of students going to these schools between, in the 1960s, about a half a million white students, mostly in the south, withdraw from public schools to go to these private segregation academies, which are also often having a religious uh, bent to them. Um, I actually taught at a school that was founded, a private school that was founded during this period. The teachers, the teachers there who had been there from the beginning said it wasn't a segregation academy, but... Opening in the mid nineteen sixties as a private religious school in the South, the parents I think often saw it as a segregation academy, even if the, the teachers maybe didn't. On what, the, what was the
1: religious affiliation? Uh, I was
0: Episcopalian. Right. Um. But it was in North Florida, so it was in kind of practice. It was did not. It, most of the students were actually Baptist. Right. Take that for what you want. Um. The sort of flip side to that is, is how do you actually create integrated schools, right? And and there are a variety of, uh, you know, simply uh, saying, okay, look, we're not going to segregate the schools anymore. We're going to allow students to go to their nearest school doesn't in and of itself necessarily create integrated schools because of all the ways that you have uh, not only de jure segregation before Brown versus education, but you have de facto segregation based on geography, based on uh, on class, how do you go about creating integrated schools in, this, this, in that world? Um, and different places adopt different models for how you deal with that issue. If integrated schools is an objective, some school districts inter, uh, impose busing. Um, you probably remember some of the fights over busing in Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, I and mean, yeah, I mean it was it was very very. Violent the, the the resistance to, to, to so-called forced busing and, and to desegregate the schools in Boston, in the early nineteen seventies, and there was a huge amount of resistance to it. It's a crucial class element to it as well, because be of sure. course in in the uh, kind of often all-white suburbs, this the, the, busing didn't apply. So this was this was something that happened um, within within well at least in Boston itself, um, you know often between white and black working class neighborhoods often the the residents thereof pitted against each other um but yeah the busing was one solution to to seeking to desegregate schools and
0: and and, uh, and the objection to it if you want to be be charitable to the people who objected to it part of it was about race but part of it was also about why is my kid not going to my local school why is he being put on a bus to go to a school far away that may not be necessarily as good in their parents minds um One of the responses, though, and one of the responses that's still quite uh, important in terms of the landscape and public education in the United States are magnet schools, Um, and the first of which opens in, in Philadelphia in 1965. And the idea behind a magnet school was instead of in addition to the local schools that a school district might have, all of which basically offer the same thing, you set up special schools. Uh, within the district that have some kind of unique offering to them. Uh, like a, well, one, actually taught at a magnet school once, and there was an arts magnet school. And the premise was they're gonna have a slightly different curriculum. They're gonna have access to things other schools don't have. They will be a place where you can learn foreign languages or arts or some other kind of specific uh, sort of variation, uh, specialization. And they often put these magnet schools in what had been traditionally minority neighborhoods on the supposition that white parents wouldn't want to send their children to a black school just for integration but they would potentially want to send their kid to the magnet school and create an integrated schools through those mechanisms Um, and there's been tremendous growth in the number of magnet schools both which have an appeal to people, both for the inter- purpose of integration, partially because they offer different kinds of curriculum than, than, than your standard issue uh, schools. Um, how successfully they've been and in created the integration is a, is a different question entirely, but they have become uh, prevalent in, in a large, and I think most states now have magnet schools. The only ones that don't are school, places that are so sparsely populated that they can't uh, support them. Um, the other two sort of big sort of changes in the landscape um, are charter schools and homeschool.
1: Yes, in, in researching this, I was shocked to realize that charter schools didn't start really until I left the United States. States right? So you, you've got more more immediate experience in, more in charter most, schools than me. Uh, uh,
0: yes, uh, partially because I I found looking at these, I've been doing, I've done like a bit of each of these, so so <laughs> like I. I taught at a magnet school for a bit. I taught at a private school. Um, I sent a child to a, a charter school. Uh, the idea behind charter schools, again, this is part of this sort of school choice model, is to create public schools, so funded by the state, but schools that are not as bound by state regulations, state requirements, state curriculum um guidelines that the schools have more freedom to create an individual kind of curriculum for themselves. So
1: for our non-U.S. listeners yeah. and for people like me who may not be as au okay fait with this issue, yes. is it fair to say, as a, as, a, as a very brief summary, they're publicly funded but privately run? Is that, is basically, that is that, Is yes. that a fair summary? Yes. Okay. That is
0: basically the deal. Um, so they are autonomous um, and, and they run different ways. to how each state has their own particular variations about how these things work. The first was opened in 1992 uh, in uh, Minnesota, but they've spread to uh, most states now have these charter schools. Um, some of them are very, very good. If you look at those sort of rankings of public schools, often the, many of the top slots are filled by charter schools, although there are many charter schools that are also not so great. You know, for instance, you can teach at a charter school in many places if you, without a teaching license. Whereas public schools, you would have to have a teaching license.
1: Okay, but do these often have ideological or or religious bents or anything like that? I mean, yeah. I what, so,
0: what so they, in theory, can't have a religious bent. You can't have a a charter okay. school that is Baptist. Okay. There are some places where you have things that are sort of, people are trying to sort of skirt that in, in, in creative ways to get state funding for what is essentially religious schools. Um, you know, but you'll have a a charter school that has, um, you know, it's a Montessori charter school where they have a different educational philosophy and or, or ones that are emphasizing Business or emphasizing some other kind of things. So they, they they try to. The idea is there's a marketplace of schools you get to choose from instead of going. Everyone being compelled to sort of go through the same uh, place. The charter school model is designed to to sort of create that sort of uh, menu of options for you. Um, there are lots of criticisms of charter schools. Um, for for some for good reasons. You know, they often don't offer the kinds of resources that. Um, Regular public schools do, for instance, they often don't provide transportation. They often don't provide lunch. So if you are from a disadvantaged background, you may not have access to the free lunches that are going on at your regular school. You wouldn't get access to the bus. So, so there, are, there are some potential problems with charter
1: schools. Is it true also, David, that they, they dilute the funding for conventional public schools as well? Because if, yes. if students if students go to a charter school... It, and correct yes. me if this is wrong. My, my understanding is that the school gets funded by the state per capita for the students that are coming. But, yes. all, but in that funding, it's not as though the, the, the pool of funding expands. That is right. That funding is is lost to the conventional public school. Is that correct? Yes. Okay.
0: Uh, I mean, again, it depends on each state yeah. that has its own particular version of this. But one of the critiques of them is that it does... Siphon off resources that would be going to uh, the the public the regular public school system. Um, take that for. And these were created in the interest of choice. Basically, the idea is is again uh, it's about parents have and children, but mostly parents really um, having choices about what kind of education their kids would their students their children would have in in these schools. Um, so so you know it's going back to sort of Milton Friedman's idea that. that you know, the mar- that schools should embrace a market model rather than a one-size-fits-all
1: Okay, model. there's one other model we need to talk about and then I want to pose a difficult question okay. to you. So, so what's that final well, model? Well, the
0: final model is homeschooling, which has grown tremendously in the last 25 years. Um, and, you know, one of the, if you look at the history of homeschooling, um, there, there was actually a fight in, in many places about whether homeschooling was legal. If you have compulsory education laws like all states have compulsory education kind of Like the
1: old Dame schools in the Asian Well, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, if, if you know, schooling is, is compulsory, do you have a right as a parent to take your kid out of any kind of school, whether it's a private school or public school or parochial school, and teach them at home according to whatever values you have you want to inculcate in your children at home. Um and so there were huge fights in the '60s, '70s, and and especially uh, in the '80s over the legality of 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 homeschooling. Um, but you know, especially in the past two decades, uh, homeschooling has actually surpassed private schools in terms of the number of students in many places. about the number of students who are who are homeschooled, um, and many people do it. They do people for do it for all kinds of reasons. Some people do it. For Many people do it for uh, religious reasons. They want to have a certain kind of religious education for their children. Others do it because they think they can provide a more specialized education, one that's tailored to the specific needs of their child rather than sort of generic uh, needs of, of children of their age. Um, I also
1: homeschooled my kids.
0: So I've done done all of these
1: things. So, so you're our model for all of this. Uh, I don't know whether I do any of these things well. but um, <laughs> But... but... So I'm interested in this uh, because what we see emerge from the, uh, going back to Horace Mann and certainly Mm. the, the kind of civic education project of the progressive era is some sense of, okay, we're all, or if not all of us, most of us are in this together. And the common educational experience is actually important for fostering a common sense of identity and a common membership in society. Do all the Does this emphasis on choice in the past 50, but really the past 30 mm. years, we've seen the prolifer- proliferation of this. Um, is that problematic for uh, somebody who's experienced yeah, it both yeah. as a parent and, and as a teacher and an educator? Uh, my slight concern is if you take that common experience away, it's probably contributing to the, the level of kind of culture war we're having at the moment, which is what we began with. You know, there's a, that's not my hard question, though. But oh, that's, okay. That is well, a it, question. But, well, I, I,
0: I think it does be... You know, there's the, the book that came out was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Bowling Alone, right? Right. But it's sort of the fragmentation of American society. And the kind of... It's, it's not quite segregation, but there is a kind of, of a filtering that, that's happening uh, in which people don't have these kinds of common experiences and the experience that you get at a magnet school, at a charter school, if you're homeschooled, if you're going to a private school... You know the, the, the those that di- that diversity that that you don't have that common experience of everybody went to the high school in your town and you all shared that regardless of whether you end up you know uh, being, being you know wealthy and successful or whether you ended up. You know, I mean that, that was, was my experience. experience
1: everybody right? now everybody went to the local high school with a, a small handful of kids went to a, to a private school nearby but basically everybody went to the same high school i don't want to idealize that because of course there was a huge amount of social stratification that went on depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. so it was a you know an upper middle class suburb of boston so it was pretty homogenous and uh fairly affluent and so so there was a, the, the sorting had gone on when you when you bought your house yes, not, yes, not exactly. so so, so uh, but there was still a kind of we're all here and you didn't know anybody's religious or political background in that school and everybody had that common experience um, and and I think that's that's increasingly vanishing.
0: I think that is increasingly yes. I think that is the case. Um, you know, and what is that? You know, the 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 obligation. I'm you know, thinking about these various charter schools and magnet schools and homeschooling. You know, what is the obligation of the state to to ensure that children get access to a kind of education that is universal. Um, you know, one of the sort of weird things about homeschooling is every state has their own sort of laws about how it works. Uh, you know, when we moved around a bit. So, you know, one state, we had to keep attendance records in our homeschool, which seems kind of comical. Yes, do we know where our children are? You yes, okay, know, we knew where they are every day. Um, you know, we had to keep vaccination records on file because it was... How quaint. Of, yeah, no. Uh, probably won't have to do that anymore um but uh, you know and each state has their own sort of uh, one place we had to get take, had uh, t- had to have give the children's tests every year and we had to verify with the state that we had given them tests but we didn't have to tell the state what the tests were or how they did so there's very bizarre kinds of 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 state regulation of, of these kinds of things you know but do students who come out of homeschooling emerge with the kind of common experience? No, they don't. And it's um, the the model that, that Horace Mann envisioned is is uh, not dead, but it's uh, in a very different place. Okay, David,
1: you've experienced this whole kind of smorgasbord of education that's available in the United States in the past thirty years. I want to, I want to, I want to put a question to you, and I think it's unanswerable, but I'm going to put it to you. Oh, now. good, that was the best yeah. guy. <laughs> Which is. If one believes in democracy, and if one believes in um, some measure of local control over education, which seem to be compatible. One can think that's very democratic, parents should have a say in how their children are educated. Mm. I I say if one believes, I think both of us would agree with with those uh, stipulations. And I'm not endorsing the kind of knuckle-dragging, screaming at school board meetings we've seen in recent months over critical race theory. However, is it wrong for parents to assert that they want their local schools to teach um, and have a curriculum that reflects their values and the values of the local community?
0: Well, I think there's there's, there's two questions there. One is about do should the schools reflect the local community values and do parents have the right to impose their values right. which may or may not be the same thing Very um, good point. Yep. you know th- th- there's some of these fights about uh you know what gets taught in schools what kinds of books people have access to what's in the school libraries sex education evolution all this kinds of stuff um you know, was, there's was a te- Texas case where the state legislature made them pull a whole bunch of books. And one of the people involved in that that fight said, parents absolutely have the right to say what their own children read, but that right doesn't extend to other people's children. You know, and so where's the right of an individual parent end? Where's the right of the community begin? To what extent do... You know, we trust teachers and librarians and school administrators to make good decisions, which may be good for the community, but may not be what each individual parent wants. Um, And and parents often, you know, don't know what's in the best interest of their children. And don't necessarily
1: agree with each other. other.
0: Well, they they don't agree with each other and and they don't, you know, like for instance many of the books that are being pulled in texas and other places are books that are about issues about sexuality or about issues of race or about issues of class and you know i think as many school librarians have pointed out there are young children students who need access to these books for themselves whether their parents want them to have access to them or not uh, and you know where is the obligation of schools to, to give students what they want or need? Uh, where, is, where does that relationship trump the relationship that the schools have with?
1: And kids? that's where the debate is right now and why I mean on one hand there's an element of uh, this is just gender political controversy. Mm. but on another level, there's a real tension. so I pose that question I want to make clear in posing this question, I'm not advocating banning books. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's a really difficult question to think of, okay, where does parental authority, mm-hmm. you know, where, where's the boundary between parental authority and the, the interest of the community when it comes to education? Where, 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 where's that boundary? Between those, sure, and how do you navigate that boundary? And so, so I think while a lot of what we're seeing is just nonsense. So the reason I think it's Wisconsin where they've now they're just baiting a bill where you can't say critical things about the origins of the United it, States or some yeah. kind of a nonsense like that. That's those things are ridiculous and they're powerful. I mean, the, the you know, CRT we only need to critical race theory, which we talked about a few months ago. You know that proved to be a very powerful electoral issue. We saw it in the recent Virginia gubernatorial election. I think it'll figure prominently next year, in next year's midterm election. So, so it works electorally. I think particularly for the for the Republicans at the moment. But having said that, I think it, it, the reason it's powerful is because there is a real issue about who controls schools. And I think when Ian posed this question for us, um, you know, as somebody who lives in the United States, mm. this, is a, this is an interesting and ongoing discussion. And it's not, it's not actually as easy as, it, as you think. It's easy to see the videos on YouTube of people screaming at school board meetings and say, well, what a bunch of idiots, yeah. because they are. <laughs> but also the underlying issue is, is a real one. I mean, I don't know how many school board meetings you've been to, but like you know,
0: I think that we are at a very different place right now than we are, have been over most of the past fifty years. I mean, there have obviously been places and moments and times when school board meetings have been contentious over, especially over sex education, other kinds of things. But the kind of scenes I think that
1: we've had recently are of a order of magnitude
0: different than than.
1: The right, and they are a product of the current moment culturally and politically. Which, as I intimated earlier, might partially be a product of the fact that we no longer have common educational experiences. Yes, you know the great sorting has happened, and we live in a, if not two different worlds, and maybe several different worlds, and those worlds are coming into conflict.
0: Right. Uh, we can probably talk about this for for, for hours and hours, but but but. While yeah. it, but thanks for suggesting yes. that, Ian. Yes, uh, uh, we always it. welcome suggestions from from listeners. Now. Uh, last drops,
1: Frank. I right? want to endorse a book that I'm holding up, and, and visual props are really important and really a... good on on a, on a podcast. Uh, it's called The Brethren. It's written by Brendan McConville, who's a, who's an early American uh, historian at, the, at Boston University. And uh, it's a really interesting book. I, I read it, I had the privilege of reading it in manuscript. It concerns a conspiracy in North Carolina they, during the early years of the American Revolution, which you may or may not know about, David, as, yeah. a, as a one-time North Carolinian. Um, It's called the Llewellyn Conspiracy, and it concerns, it's a rebellion by a group of, it's a rebellion within a rebellion by a group of Protestant, basically Protestant fundamentalists against the revolutionary government of North Carolina. These are not loyalists, they're not loyal to the crown, but they're rebellious because they fear that the revolutionary government in North Carolina might be a danger to Protestantism in the state. So it goes to some of the things we've been talking about and there was a and Brendan's done a great job because there was a prolonged law case around this and it it raises all kinds of interesting questions about um, loyalty and religion and Basically, what a complicated situation the American Revolution was. It's not as simple as patriots versus loyalists, or patriots versus, or Americans versus British, and it goes to that. It would make an excellent Netflix series, but I can strongly, it's beautifully written Netflix. And, you're listening, yeah. Okay. So it's it's The Brethren, a story of faith and conspiracy in Revolutionary America that was published uh, recently by Harvard University Press.
0: Great. Yeah. What's yours, Dave? Uh, well, I think as as uh, many listeners may know. Uh, we uh, there was a uh, industrial action here on campus and across British universities. Why we didn't appear last week? Exactly, we were we were on strike on the picket lines. Um, I just want to sort of make a shout out both uh, to to another strike that's happening with Columbia University graduate students, which is one of the largest uh, industrial actions by 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 higher education union in the United States happening right now. Um, and uh, just, uh, the news story came out yesterday of unionization at Starbucks, or at least at a couple of Starbucks stores. And as a former, former Starbucks employee, it's you know the we've had some ba- episodes about sort of the the state of America the American labor movement, but it's good to, to see uh, some positive direction in, in that area uh, in recent weeks. So so yes, Starbucks drinking the coffee, cheers, fight the power. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at @WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.